Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky And all the people living for today. Welcome. My name is Anne Wilson, and I'm delighted to host Series 3 of our Emerge Australia podcasts. This is our clinical series in which we bring to our listeners some of the world's leading clinicians and researchers in the field of ME-CFS and long COVID. We're very excited about this series and hope you all are too. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of country and and their connections to land, sea and community and pay my respect to elders past and present, noting their continuing contributions, struggles and achievements. Dr. Lucinda Bateman, MD, is a distinguished clinician, researcher and educator, a product of the esteemed Johns Hopkins University Medical School. Dr. Bateman has always placed the patient at the centre of her practice. Her philosophy is clear. Just because a condition is unknown or unexplained does not mean the patient should receive anything less than thorough and compassionate care. Since establishing her practice in 2000, Dr. Bateman's accomplishments are numerous. She's served on six prestigious boards, acted as the principal investigator for at least 45 groundbreaking studies. She's authored or co-authored at least 40 journal articles, contributed as an adjunct instructor and assistant professor at the University of Utah in various departments. She's lectured at global conferences, sharing her expertise and knowledge. In 2015, Dr. Bateman played a pivotal role as a clinical expert on the IOM NAM committee assisting in the formulation of the clinical diagnostic criteria for MECFS. This was a significant moment for clinicians, researchers, and patients alike. Her collaborative efforts span institutions such as Stanford, Columbia, Cornell, Harvard, CDC, NIH, the Recover Initiative, RIKEN, and more. As the co-founder of the US MECFS Clinician Coalition, her influence in the medical community is undeniable. Further demonstrating her dedication, in 2015, Dr. Bateman fused her private clinical and research practice with its non-profit counterpart, OFFA, birthing the Bateman Horn Centre, or BHC as it's abbreviated. This centre is devoted to the diagnosis, management, research and education, benefiting those affected by multi-system chronic complex diseases. Today, her passion remains undiminished as she continues to champion the cause of enhancing access to informed medical care 
placing a keen emphasis on medical education. Welcome to our podcast series, Dr. Lucinda Bateman. Thank you very much. So to commence and and kick us off today, I'm wondering whether you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to be involved with MECFS. What what was the spark? What made you interested in this area of work? So I finished medical school in 1987 and went back to Salt Lake City, the University of Utah, to do my internal medicine residency. And when I arrived, and I think I started in 87, I found my sister who lived there in Salt Lake City was sick with something. And nobody could figure out what was wrong with her. She had gone to doctor after doctor, and they'd pretty much finally given up and decided she needed to be on an antidepressant. So my journey really started with me trying to find her a diagnosis. And it just happened to parallel the literature in the possibility that Epstein-Barr virus was contributing and the beginning of some yearly scientific conferences for what we were then calling chronic fatigue syndrome. And so, yeah, I just kind of started hitting the publications and learning from for myself. And then uh, while I was in practice in the 90s, my knowledge grew, but I also began seeing many more patients, right, who came with unexplained fatigue or, you know, problems. They had infections or it really wrapped around it illness of fibromyalgia as well. So chronic pain and chronic fatigue. So I was a little burned out of practice after 10 years, just kind of trying to decide what I needed to do to liven things up. And a close friend of mine said, what do you really want to do? What, you know, what would be the most exciting thing for you to do? And I said, if I could, I would like to raise awareness of chronic fatigue syndrome. So that was the beginning. I quit my general medicine practice and opened a fatigue consultation clinic in 2000. And that was the start. Wow. So tell us a little bit more about your fatigue consultation clinic. It's really interesting because in Australia right now, let's fast forward to 2024, we have very little, if any, clinics that consult on fatigue. Obviously, we'll talk about a little bit more about long COVID later on, but, you know, we don't have places that people in Australia could go with regard to their MECFS. Tell us, you know, how you started, what some of the challenges were for (laughs) you in starting a fatigue clinic in the year 2000. Yep. There were no fatigue clinics here either, and there probably still aren't. I chose to call it a fatigue consultation clinic because I didn't want want to call it a chronic fatigue syndrome clinic. I felt like we would be learning and changing, and I didn't want to be narrow in my view. And I wanted to include anyone. And pretty much I saw people who didn't get their fatigue taken care of in another setting. So someone that has fatigue from multiple sclerosis wouldn't come to my clinic, right? It was people who the fatigue in their life was really interfering, but they couldn't get any kind of medical help. And I considered it my training, right? I thought if I am going to be an expert in this, which people were considering me an expert, but I was just a 
primary care doctor, just a, a generalist, right? And I thought, you know, people are going to assume I know something. I better make sure that I really know what I'm talking about. So I considered it sort of my education, right? To bring in patients, be very thorough, use my internal medicine skills to investigate what might be making them ill. And then what I was left with became the challenge, right? Whether it was widespread pain or fatigue or brain fog and those other things. And that was the beginning of my serious education about this family of illnesses. Yeah, it it does seem to be the case that clinicians who have someone or a connection, <clears throat> whether it's a you know a, a someone in their direct family or 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 further afield, uh, seem to take a greater interest in in treating patients uh, than clinicians who have had nothing to do with MECFS, although. One would argue that they probably see MECFS in varying forms as a result of other infections or or viral illnesses, but they don't necessarily recognise it. Is that? It, it, would you agree with that? Or that that? It... Oh, yes. I mean, it was particularly frustrating for me, and that those years of my residency to be in a respected academic institution that had no respect for any of the patients that I eventually adopted as my entire focus. Mm-hmm. And that was that was a motivator for me, right? Because it was clear to me about the suffering of patients simply not only from my sister, but then all the other people I met And what I did in my fatigue clinic, because I was self-employed, I could control everything I did, or I could choose how long I wanted to spend with patients. And that allowed me to, there was no no boss except me, right? And so that gave me a great deal of freedom to be able to take the time I needed, really learn from very extensive interviews with the patients. And also, I believe that long-term follow-up of patients is how you learn also, because it's not just making a diagnosis, it's understanding the evolution of the illness, how it responds to various treatments. And of course, that's how I learned about post-exertional malaise, right, is from patients. Because if you listen, it's just stunning, right, what happens to people and their inability to be cognitively or physically active and to tolerate those stressors environmental stressors. Yes, you touched on something there, which of course in today's day and age, particularly in Australia, is a major issue. And that is the amount of time that our clinicians have to spend with their patients. Our health system by and large in Australia controls that. And uh, it also controls the reimbursements that are paid to clinicians, which has meant that, you know, patients who need time to tell their stories and as you say clinicians who need to listen to their stories are actually not reimbursed for their time and that's a major issue it's changing slowly in Australia but do you want to comment for a moment on you know systems in the United States and 
and the ability of your standard clinician or general practitioner in a clinic to spend the amount of time necessary with MECFS patients to really listen? Yes, I'd love to comment on that because it's an important source of the problem. And that is that, well, when I started practice, it was quite different at the beginning in the early 1990s, in 1990. And we had more freedom to take time with patients. Even in my internal medicine practice, we would schedule 30 minutes for a lot of uh, patient visits because, you know, we're managing chronic illness problems as general internal medicine, you know, kind of chronic illness in adults. So it was modeled for me, you know, taking time, taking a history and spending time with patients. It just had to be extended a little more for these complex patients. Sorry, I've got a little cough. But what happened is through the 90s, fewer and fewer doctors were able to be in private practice. And there was more and more large corporations began to employ doctors. And as that happened, it it became more and more like you described, that doctors had less freedom to take time, less freedom to individualize care. And in parallel, there was also a huge effort to improve the quality of healthcare delivery by requiring doctors to practice based on the evidence base. And then pretty soon, you know, doctors were got less and less able to do anything outside the guidelines without some kind of negative consequence. And then insurance companies began to reimburse based only on whether people were following the high-level published evidence base. The problem is if you have a new condition, you don't have an evidence base from which to practice. And so I've spent most of my career with this whole evolution of evidence-based medicine needing to practice outside the established evidence base and using my medical knowledge to try to make sensible healthcare based on what we know in other conditions. And that's been challenging, but it's partly why I've been able to make progress is I've tried to keep one foot firmly in academics and yet make the argument that this is a real illness. It We have many things to learn from it, and we can borrow from other aspects of medicine to provide at least some aspects of care and to make the life of patients with these illness uh, illnesses better and more manageable. Yeah. We'll come back to the borrowing from other illnesses a little bit further on because that's an important point that you raise. So in 2015, you established the Bateman Horn Centre for Excellence in MECFS. Can you tell us a little bit about the centre and the need that it fills and the focus? Yes, I would love to because it's it's very exciting. Our nonprofit offer the small nonprofit offer stands for Organization for Fatigue and Fibromyalgia Education and Research, it was the acronym. Had an all volunteer working board, mostly of people who had the illness or who provided care for people with the illness, a small organization. We were surprised one day by a, an unexpected donation of a man who passed away and left us $100,000 in his will. He had known someone 
who was a patient at our clinic. We did not even know this man. And, you know, we had a base, we had a bank account of about $20,000. <laughs> so, and we put on conferences mostly with our own labor. So I challenged the board of our organization, you know, we can't just, you know, we just got gifted $100,000. What are we going to do with it? And how are we going to honor this gift with something that can really contribute to the field? So long story short, after about a year of preparation, we decided that we that the non that we would fuse as you described the clinic and the research we did in the clinic with the nonprofit to create a center of excellence a nonprofit center of excellence and nonprofits I don't know if it's the term used in Australia in the UK it would be a charity I guess yeah. um, so uh, and what what the reason that it was important is it. It, I was able to get a much bigger group of people to empower our, our mission to help me. So it wasn't just me taking care of people and doing the research and going out and speaking. We were able to move to a new site with a better and kind of start fresh and build our staff and see if we could survive as a nonprofit. I think we're the only nonprofit I know of, at least in the U.S., that does a combination of patient care, research, and education. And those are the components of what the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. says a center of excellence should be. You should. And so we thought, well, that's a good model. We'll try to follow that. And as be, in being a nonprofit, we're able to apply for federal grants and other grants like would not be possible in private practice. So the first person I contacted was Suzanne Vernon, who had been in the field at the Centers for Disease Control and then at another nonprofit as their research director at, at Solve MECFS that was called the CFIDS Association then. And they were making some changes and she was ready for a change. And so she came and we put our heads together and with the help of the board, moved forward to create what is now a pretty a powerful influence for uh, for supporting patients. And what's nice about a nonprofit is we we're mission driven, right? We're not profit driven. So every decision we make is really how can a lean, relatively small organization like ours facilitate change? How can we encourage research project progress? How can we model, learn about patient care and model it for others? And then how do we take what we've learned and provide it for patients first? But now we've had a big, a, really a big focus on how do we take this and make it medical education and take what we've learned and give it to doctors and provide that as a resource. So it's been really exciting for sure. Wow. Emerge Australia aims to ensure that anyone impacted by MECFS or long COVID has access to support, information and advocacy that empowers them with the knowledge and skills to make their lives more livable. We offer support to over half a million Australians who face MECFS and long COVID. Well, I'm, I'm smiling listening to you speak because I, I loved your explanation of a centre of excellence. Uh, our little organisation in Australia, Emerge Australia, which is a, a national patient organisation and a healthcare charity, not-for-profit, 
is all the things that that you said your centre is, but we can't call ourselves a centre of excellence in Australia. Something else is meant by that. But we also uh, work and we are the only national organisation that delivers services across clinical education, advocacy, biomedical research and patient support and education. So, and our goal, of course, is sustainability financially, which is a challenge for us. So I relate to so much of of what you've just said in the establishment of the Bateman Horn Centre, which so many of our patients talk to us about and praise for the work that you do. So, you know, it's terrific. And it's also terrific to hear about your focus on clinical education because that is something that obviously we've identified in Australia is really at the root of what needs to be addressed because like your patients, our patients want to go and see a doctor that knows something about MECFS and its treatment management and diagnosis, of course. So I'm leading into a question to you about what your approach is to treating MECFS patients, because I'm really interested in that. And then we'll go on a little bit more to talk about clinical education. So can you tell us a bit about your approach to treating people with MECFS? Sure. It's it's evolved over time, for sure. I would say that in the first decade of my work, I really focused on how can I improve the quality of life of my patients in the absence of approved treatments for the primary illness. So I would say that the number one thing is teaching people to pace their activity so they're not triggering illness worsening because it's not really intuitive to patients when they first get sick. Really help them understand about avoiding significant post-exertional malaise so they have stability. And then really, I just, especially since I saw a lot of fibromyalgia patients, we focused on pain management and establishing better sleep, more restorative sleep and helping people through the emotionally difficult parts of this illness by you know empowering them with information and helping them learn about the illness as we have gone on we have learned so much more about what we call comorbid conditions in MECFS and that gives us another handle to teach doctors and to and focus on aspects of illness where we can impact more. An example of that is understanding the autonomic dysfunction and the orthostatic intolerance that is pretty ever-present if you look in MECFS to a degree. It may not manifest as POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, but there are plenty of studies that show that blood flow and perfusion of the brain diminishes in the upright posture. So just understanding that and being able to use the tools we have already from other fields of medicine to support and treat that. I would also say, you know, and standard treatment for migraines, for example. And one of the ways I teach physicians is to break it down into the parts of the illness that they might be more familiar with. So they don't feel like they just, you know, have to treat 
the whole illness with the treatment they're unfamiliar with. It's it's hard to go into. I mean, we've done whole whole day seminars on management, right? And how you approach treatment. So, and we're learning a lot more about, you know, low-dose naltrexone and antivirals. We have a long way to go in understanding the core treatments, but I and I think we'll talk about this later, but the entire COVID pandemic has opened up a whole new avenue, and I should say a whole new level of interest from clinicians and scientists and opened their mind to the idea that something like this can happen in the absence of good objective diagnostic tests. Yeah. Yeah. We will, we will touch on that a little bit further on in the interview. I want to ask you what you believe might be happening in the bodies of people with MECFS based on best available evidence? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> that's another deep, you know, a very complicated question. I firmly believe some very basic things. One is there's probably someone that's more prone to getting this illness in the first place, maybe genetic or maybe situational, right? That may put people in a position where they're more vulnerable. I am, I have a strong belief in the hypothesis that there's a role played by viruses and maybe other infections and the presence of that DNA or RNA and also the potential for reactivation. And then there's a tight connection with some kind of a chronic immune and inflammatory process that may, you know, feed back and forth. I also feel fairly confident that this illness affects the central and peripheral nervous system and the interplay with circulation and the delivery of everything in the blood to critical organs. And I think one of the most important areas to me is trying to understand why cellular energy production is abnormal. And we don't, we barely have begun to try to understand that with science and what cells are involved and how do we diagnose it? And then how do we approach management of that? So there's an interplay of these processes going on kind of in concert and all together, which is creating a multi-system presentation of disease that can be a little bit intimidating, right? Because it can affect so many areas of the body and create so many symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of leads pretty nicely into a discussion about COVID. Long COVID, of course, is a huge issue globally. I'm really interested in your views on the overlaps between what you see with MECFS and long COVID and discuss where the current evidence is regarding these similarities. Sure. It's made total sense to me because for a very long time before the pandemic, I've said that people with MECFS have uh, commonalities, but each patient maintains sort of a fingerprint of the way their illness started, maybe the pathogen. So if it started in their GI tract, they have a lot of GI symptoms. If it started in their respiratory tract, when they relapse, they have those symptoms. So to me, I feel like the the, the pathogen that made them sick in the first place kind of leaves that uh, trail of evidence that it's either damaged at the time or, or stayed around to create symptoms. So 
it it didn't take long into 2020 to realize that there were a lot of people who had COVID who weren't getting better, and they were starting to look very much like other post-viral and post-infectious conditions that I'd been studying. So we very, yeah, it, it was hard because in the pandemic, the first year especially, we were just trying to keep people from dying. And all the focus in medicine was to you know, prevent the illness and try to figure out how to take care of people who got super sick. And gr- gradually, and then the next big wave was about getting people vaccinated, right? And trying to get the vaccines out in 2021. And so it was kind of low on the totem pole, right? The idea that people weren't getting fully better. And it's it's gradually become such an, an obvious issue as we've passed through those other phases of illness. So we've very, in the fall of 2020, we started, I started giving some lectures and really studying other post-viral conditions and the things that, that COVID, that long COVID seemed to have in common and sort of introduced this idea to doctors. Hello, you know, we've seen lots of other illnesses that follow with a chronic condition after infections, and that's not new. And then very strategically in 2021, right in the beginning of 2021, we hired two clinicians and trained them to evaluate long COVID and 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 very strategically brought in about 100 long COVID patients into our clinic. We hired two new clinicians so it wouldn't take away from what we were already doing, right? That wouldn't diminish our ability to serve our ME-CFS patients from before. And it was a great education and really important. And those two clinicians who took care of long COVID patients now are fully equipped to take care of everybody who comes to our clinic. But what was stunning is we screened our patients and we only brought people in who were fairly simple otherwise. That, you know, they didn't have a lot of other mental health problems or other medical problems, and they had become sick and not gotten better from a COVID infection. And I would say 80 to 90% of the patients we brought in met ME-CFS criteria. Now, I don't believe that's the overlap out in the population because you know we're a specialty clinic and we tried to get people to come. And I think they came because they know we did ME-CFS. But in every ME-CFS specialist, clinical specialist I've talked to anywhere in the world, believes that COVID, that SARS-CoV-2 infection can lead to post-COVID ME-CFS. And so the, the real thing has been trying to overcome biases in the medical and scientific community about what ME-CFS is. I mean, it's hard to, and also long COVID is really a term for anybody who has any lingering symptoms after their COVID infection. So, you know, lots of people don't get sick enough and have enough multi-system illness to meet ME-CFS criteria. If you have persistent lack of smell and taste, that's a long COVID, but that's not ME-CFS. But once people have what what is really becoming clear in the more persistent and debilitating long COVID is cognitive impairment and autonomic dysfunction, disordered sleep, and post-exertional malaise, right? And that's ME-CFS, right? And we can define it any way we want because a, def- a case definition kind of you know, forms a circle around people with common symptoms, right? And so it's a little self-defining. But I see this as a great opportunity to study people in the early stages of post-viral illness. 
because we lack that in the MECFS literature. We tend to study people after they've been sick more than three years, right? And a lot of our patients engaging in research have been sick more than 10 years. And the data are lost about everything that happened to them clinically in the first one to two years of illness because they can't get into clinics and their doctor, you know, they they struggle and they try to, they see a lot of doctors. So I see it as a golden opportunity to study a large group of people who get a known, objectively defined condition from the pathogen we've been studying and track those people over time. Some people get hit right away and meet MECFS criteria. Some people, you know, start to get better and then they get sicker again. But as time passes, more and more people with COVID-related symptoms improve or get better. And we're left with, over time, the people who have really kind of severe and debilitating chronic illness. It's going to look more and more like what we study when we study MECFS. Sure. And I guess the the holy grail is to look at how we can identify those people earlier. So, you know, what are the biomarkers that would identify someone who gets COVID or for that matter gets Epstein-Barr virus, who is more likely to go on and develop MECFS and long COVID for that matter. So I guess that's where the 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 research efforts, that's one of the many research efforts that are currently being explored around the world. Yep, that is correct. And I've always felt like what was needed was a lot more people studying the illness, lots more doctors seeing patients or other medical providers seeing patients, and lots more interest in the scientific world because we make progress when we have critical mass and competition right? And no, I want to be the one to find it. I want to be the one to find it. And everybody's working hard to make progress. And being in the field of MECFS was kind of a career dead end for a lot of people. And scientists didn't want to do it and they couldn't get funded very well. And so there's now interest all over the world in trying to understand what's going on in long COVID patients. And what we've done in the MECFS world is try to keep MECFS in the conversation. You know, always, always, always in the conversation with long COVID and and what can we learn and how do we benefit both groups and how do we use what we learn in either field to make it better for everyone. Yeah, and and that's the challenge too because, for example, in Australia, our federal government has put $50 million behind long COVID research. And uh, whilst we as an organisation have been involved in a number of research applications that because of our registry, the reality is there is significant reticence to include MECFS under the premise that, well, if we find something for long COVID, then it may benefit the MECFS world rather than looking at both MECFS and long COVID as as post-infection diseases. So that leads me into a question regarding how the US is addressing 
MECFS and long COVID as part of whether it's research policy, whether it's putting them under a post-infection disease strategy? Is any of that happening in the US? I know Yale seems to be doing a lot in their medical division, and, and I suspect there's there's other institutes around the US, but interested in your views, please. It's We have progress to make. Let's put it that way. There's still a lot more we need to do, but the field, the MECFS field, the people in the field have tried to stay engaged in long COVID efforts at academic centers and particularly as funded by the federal government. So in the planning and implementation of so Recover COVID, right, is the big national federally funded effort to understand long COVID. And it's got an observational, complex observational arm of enrolling people and tracking them. And then there's a clinical trials arm of trying to design treatments and test them. And it moves painfully slowly, but they are working very hard. And so there have been people with experience in MECFS kind of as part of the planning of all of these, trying to be that voice that, you know, uh, brings up the relationship between the illnesses. But for example, the whole first protocol for looking at long COVID patients didn't ask appropriately about post-exertional malaise, which because people don't, they didn't believe it. You know, the, it's just the people planning the protocol were like non-believers. And, but they've had to go back and revise it because of the large number of patients who report post-exertional malaise. And the same with the clinical trials. They started out really with very little understanding of exercise intolerance and post-exertional malaise and, you know, the manifestations and then we've had we've had an opportunity to really educate those planning those clinical trials for long COVID at what we've learned from MECFS and about pacing and about a post-exertional malaise. So right now they're separate. They're separately funded at the federal level, but there are efforts to create a post-infection, a central, you know, post-infection study post-infectious illness. I'm not 100% sure where things are in that place, but there are both advocacy groups that are you know, fighting for that and some efforts at the level of Department of Health and Human Services trying to do that. So we'll see how that evolves over time and, and the kind of progress. I personally feel like every year that passes, they'll meld together more closely and be less divided. Because the longer we go, the long COVID patients will now become chronic illness patients, right? And it, it becomes more and more obvious that if you didn't know they had a COVID infection, how would you know COVID caused yeah. their illness? Right? <laughs> right. That's right. It's the starting point. And, and I've spoken to many researchers here that present and say, well, you know, at least with long COVID, we've got a starting point. It's COVID. The starting point for MECFS is varied, and uh, whilst Epstein Barr virus is is certainly there at the beginning for a lot of patients, there are others, as you right. uh, point out, that also cause the same range of symptoms. So it's finding that beginning in those patients that is challenging. Well, I think what we learn about COVID 
is going to help us because the farther we get out from the original infection, the more people are trying to understand, can we detect this, right? Yeah. Can we find SARS-CoV-2 <laughs> virus? Can we tell what's driving this? And they're getting better and better at being able to do that. And that's going to improve our ability to do that with other conditions as well, I hope. I think yeah. the par- a parallel to this is the, is the AIDS epidemic that, you know, in the beginning, we didn't know what caused it. We just knew people died of all these, you know, overwhelming infections. And the more we went, the more we learned about how to study the immune system. A lot of what we know about immunology was learned in the AIDS epidemic and and, and this study and the ability to find those cells that HIV infected and our ability to measure a viral load and to really study the illnesses that were compounding HIV infection. And it really changed the face of medicine for the good. But then we've been coasting all this time. So I think this is another, it will be another leap forward in our ability to study the pathogens and the immune response and what happens in the tissues. Yes, pretty cool. So can I just ask you in the last couple of questions, what is exciting you in MECFS research right now? What research project, apart from your own work, is really piquing your interest? I would say the most interesting and important area, pivotal area, is understanding the energy problems in the cell and what's creating what appears to be mitochondrial dysfunction. Yes. To, to me, that is going to be pivotal in, in us being able to move forward and design treatments and also look back to understand how the immune system is contributing, how the virus is contributing, but what's going on, right? That cellular energy is low and that patients just are unable to do very much without becoming very ill. To me, that is going to be the most important area that I'm kind of keeping my eye on, especially as that's coming up in in long COVID research as well. Yeah, yeah. So uh, two quick questions. What have you learned from people living with MECFS? I would say that almost everything I know about MECFS, I learned from patients. It's a little backwards for most doctors. Most doctors learn the science and then apply it to patients. I learned about patients. And when I hear the science, the litmus test is, does this make sense with the picture I've gleaned from this illness by talking to patients, right? And to me, the research has to resonate with everything I've learned from patients or it's not going to be useful, right? So yeah, I I have I have dear long-term relationships with a lot of my patients and they have, we've learned together. Yeah. And I have, it's just been a rich education. In fact, sometimes it blows my mind that when I try to talk to someone who doesn't understand this illness, it's like hard to even imagine not having noticed (laughs) all of their career. Yeah. All these people who have some, some kind of a debilitating problem because all you have to do is listen yeah. um, and, and learn and then use partner together and use your skill to help that person do better with their illness. Yeah. And not judge and not stigmatize and not discriminate. Right. Um, There's no place for that, actually. No, but unfortunately it happens. And yeah, that's, um, we would like 
all of our clinicians to have the values that you're now espousing and um, we want obviously more clinicians to to listen and be able to understand what is going on with their patients who have MECFS and those with long COVID because we know that the impact of both diseases is hugely, hugely debilitating. Finally, is there a final message you'd like to leave for our audience and our listeners? I think that my message would be to be optimistic and don't give up hope. It's frustrating that progress is so slow, but I think progress is going to happen more quickly. I'm I'm hopeless optimist, I have to say, but I would I like love- to encourage. <laughs> yes, and I think staying engaged in and contribute in any way that's possible. I think almost everybody has something to give, and that might only be educating your own primary doctor, or participating in research, or befriending someone you know who has the illness and giving them positive feedback and and help them maintain their optimism. But we need everybody to contribute, whether it's, you know, in an educational role, whether it's doing research, whether it's participating. And I think we've made progress with this illness largely because of the advocacy community, you know, because of patients and those patients who, despite their their illness limitations, have been able to contribute and push the agenda forward. And I have a great deal of respect for that. So yes, my final message would be, I think things are moving forward and faster than ever before, but it takes it takes time and it takes a critical mass, right, of, of people engaged. But I do believe we're making progress. Well, that's very encouraging. And I'm sure all of our listeners will find that very encouraging specifically given that it's come from you. Dr. Lucinda Bateman, thank you so much for your time today. And we look forward to keeping in touch and hearing more about the work of the Bateman Horn Centre, your research and your work. So thank you so much again. Thank you so much for the invitation. And I am impressed with all the work you and your organisation are doing, and we can learn from that as well. Thank you. So today's podcast is part of our clinical series brought to you by Merge Australia. Our aim is to bring the work of our brilliant clinicians and researchers from all over the world to our Australian MECFS and long COVID community, promoting the latest research developments and providing hope. This is a platform where together we can explore the pressing issues faced by 250,000 people with MECFS and at least 400,000 more with long COVID in Australia. Tune in again for our next interview. And don't forget, for more information, feel free to subscribe to the Emerge Australia newsletter and visit our website on www.emerge.org.au. Thank you, Dr. Lucinda Bateman, and bye for now. Thank you. You may say that I'm a dreamer But I'm not the only one And I hope someday you'll 
中。